You're listening to episode 23 of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I'll share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Hello, welcome to this new episode of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. So we are at part two of this uh, series of two episodes. So last week we had the clinical trials preparation with Aletea Vieland. And this week, she will help us and walk us through the selection of a CRO. So what is a CRO, what is a sponsor, and the relationship that they should both have. So um, please uh, take your notepad, take your uh, pen, and start to uh, make some notes because it will be really interesting. But don't write everything. I also have a surprise for you at the end. So keep until the end. And don't forget, uh, if you like what I'm doing on this podcast, uh, please provide me a review on your preferred platform. So Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google uh, Podcast, uh, just because this is really helping me a lot. Uh, so thank you for that. And don't forget to subscribe uh, to get notified for the next episode. Okay, let's listen to uh, Aletea Viland. Welcome, Easy Med Nation. Munir Elazuzi here for a new episode of the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. If you remember, so last week we are, we are talking about the clinical trials, how to prepare for a clinical trial. Uh, if uh, uh, the manufacturer should do it or not, and also what uh, some differences between the US and Europe and also all over the world. And today, uh, I want to go more further on this process and see how we are now executing the clinical trial. And for that, we have two uh, important actors who are uh, the sponsor and the CRO. And uh, I invited again uh, Aletea Vieland, to help us uh, to uh, to see exactly what is the role of those different people. So Aletea is the president of clinical research uh, strategy, and uh, she will she's really a specialist in clinical trials. Uh, if you heard if you didn't heard the previous episode, so I really uh, encourage you to go and to look at that, and uh, she will uh, really um, yeah teach you clearly what is a clinical trial. So Aletea, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm really good. Good. So we have, uh, uh, I think, a lot of um, things to explain to our audience today. Uh, as we said, so we had uh, the planning phase. Now we have the execution phase. So first, um, as I've told uh, on the introduction, so we have two actors, which are the sponsor and CRO, mm -hmm. uh, which are important for clinical trial. Can you explain us what is... Uh, a sponsor, what is a CRO, and what are the, exactly their role on this process? Absolutely. So the sponsor is actually the manufacturer of a medical device, uh, especially if we're looking at, um, you know, medical device uh, products. It could also be, for instance, pharmaceutical companies. They could be startup companies with a novel product. So the sponsor are the folks, is the company, that uh, actually makes the device or makes a pharmaceutical or biologic. Um, the CRO is a party that has many different types of services or they may have a singular service. So a contract research organization or CRO um, 
may have uh, very specific services that they offer to the sponsor organization or a broad range of services as a full service provider. So they usually have a relationship with multiple sponsors and um, they act as an, another agent or another arm of the sponsor when the sponsor is too small to conduct the clinical trial themselves. So yeah, it's uh, as we talked also on the previous episode uh, where we were talking about big companies and small companies. Uh, we can say here that when you are clinical, uh, when we are a startup, uh, mainly we are going to work with CROs. When we are a big company, maybe we have already the resources inside to to execute that. That's right. And some of the larger pharmaceutical and medical device companies may also hire contract research organizations. If their clinical operations team is too full, uh, they might not have the capacity to run a clinical trial in-house, or they may have such a large global need for a three or 4,000 patient clinical trial that it just behooves the company to have a contract relationship with a CRO. Yeah. So okay. it just depends. Just depends. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, so the CRO, I think, will be really a, a great partner on this on this process um, what uh, what now as we said we talked about the planning now we have to execute so what should do a sponsor to uh, execute a clinical trial yeah so before the sponsor actually helps qualify um, the types of CRO partners they want they really should identify what their services that they would like to have outsourced. It's not an easy thing um, to just expect that contract research organizations will be able to read your mind. And so some uh, companies may actually have, for instance, their own statistical group. And so, of course, they wouldn't need to outsource statistics, but they might not have data management, clinical monitoring, and project management. And thus, they need to establish right away um, whether or not they're going to uh, release a request for a proposal to a group of CROs, contract research organizations, who would then vie for the, to become the service provider for that particular trial. So the very first step, again, make it be known across the company what services you actually need to have contracted and which ones you'll take on yourself. Okay, so because yes, CROs can come with a lot of options, if I can say, a lot of uh, menu tools, of options, like any tools, <laughs> and maybe you use only ten percent of those tools. So you have really to select what you really need before mm -hmm. to select the C the CRO. So, mm -hmm. um, is there something important um, in terms of um, of this this section? Is there one thing that is really critical for you when you are looking for the CRO? Um, maybe something that without talking about options or different services, is there something that you say, this CRO, um, he has to have that, or you can make a test, see if he has it, to say, yes, it's a, a good CRO? One of the mechanisms that I like to use is a very formal request for proposal uh, mechanism. And while it does take considerable time to pull together an RFP document, what you can elucidate when you send it out to say five, six, eight contract research organizations is where their strengths actually lie. So for instance, if you um, have a desire to maybe use your favorite data management group and you already have an outstanding relationship with that data management group and uh, you want some agile 
partners who can work well with them. It's up to those other CROs who are bidding or vying for that business to demonstrate that they have agile, flexible models where they can work with a multitude of partners. And so it's really up to the sponsor to sort of decide what types of services they want, whether or not they have various favorite partners because they have a long-standing relationship with those partners, or if they need all full services, all of their services, and then seeing and judging how uh, the various uh, CROs respond to that RFP. It's very telling the amount of work that CROs will then put into the proposal back in response to that request for the proposal. If it's cookie cutter, it's probably not the right type of CRO partnership. Okay. If it's very customized and really helps sing, uh, sing the, the praises and sings their unique um, flavor and culture, um, that's probably a, a partner you wanna take a look at very seriously to be a partner who's going to be lasting for potentially three or four years uh, over the course of your clinical trial. Good. Um, so um, for this episode, I ask you to give us some kind of uh, good practices or tips or um, yeah, tricks to really have a good relationship between a, a sponsor and CRO. So um, are you ready to start the list? I can <laughs> come down. So uh, if uh, we can start with number one. So what is the first thing that um, yeah, you would see as a, as a good practice or good guidance uh, for, for sponsors? So it's, it's funny you ask this question because very recently I put together um, with an attorney colleague of mine, Connie Dudley, a top 10 list that I feel that we both actually feel from the sponsor's perspective really helps protect them and de-risks their clinical trial. Okay. And why that's important is that um, a top 10 or top 12 or whatever a sponsor may wish to know as their, their de-risking um, gate items is that um, obviously, you know, very uh, senior veterans in the field of life sciences have horrible stories to tell about how a CRO partnership went wrong. And, um, you know, obviously sponsors want to avoid that at all costs is, you know, we oftentimes hear, well, bigger is better or the cheapest price wins. But really, those are the types of uh, choices that can actually um, help ruin the chance of a clinical trial being successful and being completed on time. And so we put together a top 10 list and the very first item is to have the proper expertise. Okay. Um, what that means is that from a sponsor's perspective, if you're running a clinical trial and your product is novel, you would want a CRO to make to prove to you and demonstrate to you that they have the expertise in novel products, right? Uh, in things that are brand new, in data management, in regulatory um, pathways, in negotiation with the regulatory bodies and so forth. And so we oftentimes look at for experienced teams at the CRO in that subject disease or indication. The study phase, is it a pilot study? Is it a pivotal study? What is it? Is it a post-market observational study? What's also called these... Um, follow-up studies for surveillance, uh, you want to make sure that there's at least a board-certified physician on the team who understands that disease. 
the capabilities that cover that specific trial. Maybe there's multiple visits. Maybe it encompasses uh, telecommunication, uh, electronic patient-reported outcomes where the patient doesn't have to come in. The expertise then speaks from the CRO's perspective is, have they handled the nuances of operationalizing that clinical trial before, or things that simulate um, that clinical trial? And then make sure that the business development people for whom you're speaking with really understand the clinical operations piece, that they're not over-promising mm -hmm. and under-delivering, right? Because sometimes the sales and business development folks, if they don't actually have the operational experience, they're just speaking the words that they're taught to sell the product, the services. But until you're dealing with people who've actually run the clinical trials, those favorite people on the sales and business development side are those who actually have run the clinical trials, those who have faced the regulators, the notified bodies, the FDA, et cetera. So do you recommend to not speak to the sales rep, if I can say, but to speak directly to the physician? I recommend speaking to project management, to regulatory, to all the folks who go beyond the salespeople, unless sales and business development, you know, you look at the CV or you look at their tenure maybe in a social profile and see that they actually sat maybe in the sponsor side in a regulatory capacity, in a clinical operations capacity. And they have maybe 20, 30 years of really good um, experience that uh, demonstrates that they're gonna be a very good partner for you, that they've been there, done that, had some bad things happen, have lessons learned that they can help share with you. So really the trust, trust on, on this, uh, on this, um, on this year. Okay, Absolutely. number two, what is your number two on the list? So one of the most important things that I think a lot of CR, um, sponsors sort of forget about is just basically the financial stability, you know, mm -hmm. of a CRO. Um, the last 10 to 15 years have seen lots of mergers and acquisitions. Ooh. We've also seen many smaller CROs go away. And in the United States, we call um, this financial standing sort of like a going concern. Okay. And that may not translate uh, to, to your European um, subscribers as much as it does in the United States. But a going concern is basically a, a standard um, kind of term that's used when an independent audit group, an independent financial and accounting group, comes into that contract research organization and reviews their financial books and reviews how they're accounting for what's called revenue, revenue recognition, how expense reports are done, how uh, human resource uh, capital is paid in, from a payroll perspective, and those types of things. So they make sure that um, you know, to, to receive a going concern letter is actually a very good thing that a sponsor wants to see because that means that the business is being run well, that it's transparent, that there's sufficient funding that demonstrates that it will be viable, that they will likely be around for the next few years. And so another way to look at it is just to get an independent CPA firm like a Deloitte, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, somebody to attest, right, to attest that that partner, um, your CRO, is in a good financial standing. Good. Okay, so now number three. Number three is quality of a contract research organization. 
really the ones who have undergone audits and inspections, uh, who consistently demonstrate high quality. And that's um, not necessarily on the quality um, management system side where the documentation is for the device. It's their quality system across each of their functional areas and services, service lines that they're providing. So we wanna make sure that there's very little to no uh, critical or major findings. And I think it's fair to oftentimes look at the last three to five years. Certainly if a contract research or organization may have had a critical finding 10 years ago, but they made incredible improvements to their system and they haven't had any significant findings in the last three to five years, that's a, that's a, a good improvement, right? And so nobody's perfect. If somebody had a poor record 10, 15 years ago, don't count that against them look at their current quality and audit uh, system. We also wanna make sure that if they have vendors, that they are performing due diligence and audits of their vendors. Vendor relationships are very important and we want to make sure that if they do have preferred vendors that they bring uh, to the table, that they ha are routinely conducting those due diligence and, and audits as well. So when you are saying um, audits, is it, um you as a manufacturer who is auditing the company or is it a third party who is coming to audit the company? It could be both. So it could be um, various vendors who are auditing that CRL. It could be other sponsor organizations that want to come and audit. Uh, I highly recommend that any sponsor, no matter what the size, engage in an audit before you sign a contract for that contract research organization sort of goes back with that number one bullet is the sales and business development team can actually sell you on the services but until you actually physically go to the contract research organization and look at their quality management system and actually run some queries against their SOPs look at their forms look at how they've conducted themselves for other trials you really don't know what you're getting and so it's a validation method is to really do conduct that due diligence and do the audit on site, really make sure that they do have the quality because let's face it, they're the ones who are gonna be assisting you with the ultimate inspection of the regulators. Uh, they will be responsible largely for that trial master file and the data that is then submitted to the notified body, to the regulators. And so if it's not quality, you know, you will have a problem and then they will be your weakest link. And that's not fair to you if you have um, spent the necessary money, resources in your product, money and resources into uh, your contract uh, or your various contract players, the CRO and their vendors. And so making the decision for the right CRO, it's, it should not be taken lightly. It's great um, because before to hear that for me, I thought that a CRO is kind of, um, let's say something that we can trust. So it's not like a company that uh, we have to investigate, but hearing all what you are saying, it's more like, uh, it's like a supplier when we are asking them to provide some parts to us or some components for our products. We have to make all the audits before to qualify them, to have them on our approved list, if I can say, and then yes. we can start to work with them and monitor them still that they are doing the right thing. So it looks really the same kind of thing, but I, I was not really thinking about that. But when we are saying that, yeah, we'll have this relationship during three, four or five years, 
I can mm -hmm. understand that, yeah, we should not mess up at the beginning to choose somebody that is maybe um, too cheap or not having the right expertise, not having, as you mentioned, all the, the during the audits has a lot of non-conformities but didn't um, change anything. So I think, yeah, it's really a, a, good, a good advice for that. Yes. Good. So next one, number four. Number four is the flexibility. Let's face it, uh, you know, a lot of uh, my clients happen to be startup and mid-sized biotech companies, medical device companies. And, you know, when you're picking a contract research organization, you know, only maybe some functional areas are selected as the service uh, um, model. And so maybe a sponsor only wants clinical monitoring and project management, and they want to do their own data management and statistics. Maybe they need to outsource medical writing. And so to demonstrate that whether, you're, whether or not you provide full services or partial services, your flexibility with what the sponsor's needs actually are. And also knowing that the sponsor may change their mind uh, they may bring forth new issues during the course of the clinical trial. Um, you know, a CRO to demonstrate agility and to change and to be the best partner and to uh, bring in effective lines of communication, um, be a fluid extension of the sponsor's team. That's going to win the day. Um, that's going to win the partnership is to really demonstrate that. Yeah, and uh, as, as we said on the previous episode, uh, we have really to prepare our clinical trials so, and to try to identify all the different paths or the different risks or the different things that are possible. Uh, so I think this preparation is really important for the selection of the CRO uh, to really select the right kind of features, as I've said, from the, from the CRO, and maybe more because we have maybe identified some risks on this clinical trial, so to say, maybe in case, let's have that a CRO that also knows how to do that. Uh, so as you mentioned, then flexibility is, uh, I think, the right thing. Because if you start a, a process, and as you mentioned, uh, the company changes mind or change something on the process, and at the end, the CEO is not capable to do that because it's not in, in his expertise, then you have lost a lot of time or yeah, mm -hmm. some risk for your project on that. That's right. That's right. Good. So let's move to number five. Number five, cost. cost you know, yeah. <laughs> cost, absolutely. So, you know, um, the bidding process and proposals are generated uh, based upon text, just gen general narrative. And yet the CRO bid sheet or bid grid is often a very complicated matter. And most companies, most CROs will not disclose their uh, bid grids to anyone. And it's a, usually a very complicated Excel spreadsheet or something that's very similar with rate cards and you know how they account for various uh, service costs across a three-year duration and things like that. And so you really want your sponsor to be able to describe to you their cost, their rate card, who costs what, the medical writer costs this, the project manager costs that, a data manager costs this, and how they derive uh, their pricing uh, model to you. So you really need transparency into pricing uh, practices. You know, oftentimes when a sponsor runs a global clinical trial, there's exchange rates that you have to worry about. Maybe you have the bulk of the trial being run in Europe and only a small component in the U.S., and maybe its costs um, are derived over a three-year plan. Well, does the CRO then manipulate an annual exchange rate 
or then uh, assume that it's okay to start marking up at the beginning of the next year, um, you know, without price guarantee, what those costs will be. So these are the types of things that the sponsor should be in tune with. Being able to understand the, the detailed definition of a pass-through costs, when a, a CRO may mark up pass-through costs, mm -hmm. um, what's the travel policy? There's no reason to not be able to ask for a travel policy. Do you mark up the, those types of expenses? What is the actual reimbursement? Is it the face value of a receipt? Um, you know, the language in the proposal and contract by the time you get the contract, boy, maybe things have changed since yeah. the time of it, right? And so those are the types of things that the sponsor can really take a look at. So cost isn't the bottom line cost. Cost is a lot of different things. Yeah. Cost is how things are gonna change. Will you send me a uh, change order that then sends a $30,000 or 30,000 euro change to me next month, right? So cost is a real big one to work out with your CRO. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, it can, if you didn't really manage that well, you can receive a, a bill with a lot of things inside that you said, I never asked for, but as you, as you never negotiated that or never asked for it. So at the end, it's like, yeah, it's on the contract in small lines, if I can say. On the <laughs> <laughs> or no lines. <laughs> <laughs> or no lines, exactly. So yeah. good. So number six. Number six is compliance. So I always look at uh, compliance with laws and regulations and to really make sure that people across the entire company understand what compliance means. Is it ICH, GCP? Is there sufficient training? Um, you know, with the emergence of GDPR and cybersecurity, do, does the CRO have sufficient insurance policies? Does everyone understand um, how to protect the sponsor's protocol, the sponsor's investigator brochure, especially since those doc documents may contain intellectual property? Um, you know, so compliance really is uh, HIPAA, privacy, confidentiality, U.S. transfer pricing laws, uh, European GDPR, um, cybersecurity policies that make sure that your partnerships with your CRO will not get you in trouble mm -hmm. if you choose that that CRO. So yeah, I think um, compliance is really a big point, in also because there is a lot of changes that are happening all over the world. So being um, up to date, if I can say, with um, with all the regulations, all the things that are happening is also a critical, a critical point. That's right. Okay. Number seven now? Number seven, training and education. Let's face it. Um, you know, CROs uh, are oftentimes um, the bulk of the, the employees are usually contract research organizations. Uh, research associates, CRAs, excuse me, and um, probably 75 to 80%, um, you know, oftentimes there's just not enough of them. And um, so CROs will oftentimes get the youngest uh, graduates from college and train them. But the sponsor has every right to ask the experience level of the CRAs who are actually doing some of the most important work at the research sites looking and validating the clinical trial data, looking and validating to make sure 
the data has integrity, to make sure the data doesn't have any mistakes. And so training and education can be uh, requested in terms of what are you training your teams to do? Is there a continuous quality improvement plan for the staff? What does it look like? Show me the certificates as they are continuously trained. What's the content? And, um, you know, how young or how experienced are the folks who you're putting on the trials? Uh, on the trials? Because, you know, there's lots of mistakes that are had by junior staff. Um, I never advocate to put junior staff on a, a clinical trial, especially one that might be a difficult or for a novel product. I always advocate to use very experienced people who have been there, done that, know all the things to look for, to know um, when uh, data might be suspect, when a serious breach might be uh, shown by falsification of data and so forth. Uh, usually junior people may not be able to detect that at the research site. So that's just my, my perspective on training and education. So just one point about that. So it may make me think uh, if, if, for example, they are hiring junior people and those junior people are making some mistakes, if I can say, um, are they covered by an insurance for that? Or is it the CEO that has to pay back the sponsor? How, how is it working for this kind of thing? That's usually a condition in the contract that the sponsor has. Um, the sponsor uh, can actually go on visits with the CRAs if they elect to. Some CROs will build in a mechanism that they'll have a senior CRA go to one site every um, or join a CRA once every one or two years to evaluate them as a CRA, the effectiveness of their monitoring skills. And so these are the things that certainly a sponsor can ask of their CRO is, I want to go on everyone's visit at least one time to evaluate whether or not I like the CRA. And if I don't like them, you must replace them. Okay. And you must, re you know, so the sponsor is in control. The sponsor um, has delegated certain authority but they also are responsible in terms of the regulations. The sponsor is always responsible. At the end of the day, they have to take responsibility. Okay. But they can, they can also make those demands. Yeah, no, it's great. I think it's great. Okay, number eight now. Number eight is turnover. The most okay, sensitive, the, yes, the most sensitive topic in CROs. Look, there's probably 25% of every CRA and project manager who starts a project at the very beginning of a year and in 12 months time is gone. Okay. 25 25% attrition rate. And this is well documented and described in various um, clinical research journals every year. It doesn't get better. And so the sponsor must ask the CRO what their attrition rate is or what their turnover rate is and how they either justify that or how they address it. And I will tell you, CROs who say, oh, it's less than 5% or less than 10%, they're not being truthful. Okay. Um, so if you can find a CRO who can prove to you that it's around 10% or less than the average, which again is 25% attrition rate, um, they're doing very well. Uh, but you really should find the documented proof. You can also do your own research on LinkedIn to see how many people are actually being employed by that CRO. Are they uh, 
claiming the people? Are they contractors? Are they associated with the CRO? So there's ways that the sponsor can be very smart about doing their own due diligence based upon what the CRO is telling them. That's a good tip. I hope the CROs or the bad CROs are not listening to this. <laughs> So that they will not ask their employees to remove themselves from LinkedIn. <laughs> That's good. Okay, number nine. Innovation. So, you know, the regulatory authorities are granting new ways of doing things. Uh, telemedicine, electronic patient reported outcomes. There's so many new things that we can incorporate in uh, reducing the burden of patients' um, participation in research. And so the CROs who always uh, get my attention are those that are helping sponsors reduce costs by deploying new technology, new techniques. Maybe there's um, technology out there that combines the various uh, components of the electronic data capture system with a clinical trial management system and a patient reported outcome tool. Maybe there's best in class technology that are all part 11 compliant. Maybe there are, um, you know, sophisticated thinkers both at the statistical level and um, the physician level who say, hey, the uh, regulators now have what's called a basket trial, and this basket trial will enable us to do smaller clinical trials in multiple tumor types, right? And let's try to go down this pathway because we still don't have enough uh, safety and efficacy data on or treatment effect, and we want to be able to figure out what um, what uh, disease state we want to um, be focusing our business model on and our corporate objectives on. And so innovation really is a lot of different things, right? It's from a technology perspective. It's from a patient advocacy perspective. It's from e-platform solutions that are Part 11 compliant, but also the intelligent solutions with working with regulators. At the end of the day, you want the smallest clinical trial statistically to prove success, why run these very big clinical trials, right? When you can do it with a smaller clinical trial, proving safety and efficacy in reducing the cost for the sponsor. That's what I mean by innovation. No, it's great. I think, um, we'll, I think we'll face more and more innovations um, those next years with all the digital um, era, if I can say. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good, good point to also mention that, yeah, we don't need to have uh, millions of patients. We just need to be optimized. Like I mean, I said, to have really all optimization on our, of our clinical trials, even if it's really an innovation, an innovative product. Okay, number 10 now, last one. Number 10, last one. A lot of sponsors forget to ask CROs for this, but this really is a testament to how they've performed before in the past or currently with their current other clients. A sponsor should ask for references and the sponsor should obtain a minimum of three references. If a CRO does not have three to give, cross them off the list. Go with the ones that can offer three very solid references. And these should not be from vendors. These should be from life science executives for whom they were the signers of the contract, they were a signatory on the contract, and it doesn't all have to be good news, right? There can be some good with the bad because, let's face it, sometimes the sponsor is not always prepared. Sometimes it's the sponsor's fault for the way that a clinical trial um, goes. But what the sponsor really needs to hear from these other references is that 
The partnership was flexible. The part they delivered. They came up with ideas for me as I had hiccups during the clinical trial. The costs were bearable. The cost did not go um, off track, and you know things like that. So uh, always ask for a minimum of three references. So if I am a CRO, um, does it mean that each time I finalize a clinical trial, or even if it fails, if I can say I have to ask this reference to my customers? If a clinical trial fails and it's because the product doesn't work, the CRO probably did a, a very noble and excellent job at execution. And so I would actually offer that life science company uh, as a reference because of, of the pharmaceutical um, clinical trials, only about 20 to 30% are successful in phase three. Yeah, and so when you look at about 70% percent of all pharmaceutical company trials fail in phase three, of course, we're going to have failures out there. But what did the CRO do right? Mm -hmm. Did they have great communication? Did they have great flexibility? Did they know how to run the study? Did they have effective communications with not only the sponsor, but the research sites? And when you can hear those are the types of quality decisions that influence whether or not you want to work with somebody, did they have stable teams? You know, were the costs uh, transparent? Those are the things that I want to hear. It helped have a successful clinical trial. But again, when you know that, there, that only 30% in pharmaceuticals are successful and 70% fail, that should not be the decision maker. Yeah, that's good. I think, as you mentioned, it's really the relationship between the, the CRO and the sponsor. And if everything went well, and uh, yeah, if the, as I've said, it can fail because many of the product itself, but the objective is that the, the, the CRO has made his job and has uh, supported the company uh, mm -hmm. to move forward. So, so it's great. Okay, so we arrive at the end of this list. So I think it's, it's a great list. Do you authorize me um, to put that uh, as a PDF document? I will put your name anywhere and I will just ask people if they want to download it. I think it's all, it would be really great material for people to, to review that and to see all the, the 10 steps. Is it fine for uh, you? Absolutely. And it is already published in LinkedIn. But you did I give you the, um, I'll give you the PDF. If you uh, have it, it's, it's great. Yes. Oh, it will be yep. less work for me. So great. Yeah, yeah. It'll, I'll give you the PDF. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. So and then I will, I will just uh, give the link and uh, people will download it and uh, it will be really great. So is there any other takeaway or something that people have to, to understand about uh, this process again? I think the key takeaway is that when the sponsor actually has, um, you know, values and principles and transparency as their focus of their business, their mission, their values, um, you know, they really should be selecting partners who share in that same um, value proposition. And not everybody is like that. You know, um, I think the relationships, the customer relationships, when you actually can talk to your various uh, vendor partners, whether they are sales, clin ops, regulatory folks, you need to make sure not only are they very experienced, that they're listening to you that they, are, they hear what you're saying, that they understand the services that you need, that they maybe need to do a little bit more hand-holding and explanation, that there's a lot of ambiguity in clinical research. And those who actually can make it more easy to understand are usually the ones who really are the best partners for you. That's good. Um, after hearing all this list, uh, one thing that I want to ask you, if I need uh, support to select a, a CRO, should I call you? Absolutely. You should call me. <laughs> because to be honest, I, I think it's really uh, 
it's really awesome what you what you delivered today uh this yeah. is really awesome but i didn't i didn't thought about all this to be honest when when yeah, you are I, talking i say yeah it's obvious it's really it's obvious what you are you are saying but for me like CRO was oh they are the experts i cannot really ask them to no. really investigate on them i can really audit them but if yeah if i can have somebody that just to ask can you help me and be consulting for me and doing this for me to be really great so so yes. before, uh, I think there is a lot of manufacturers on the field that can maybe also relate to that. Well, but to, to your point, you know this from a quality perspective. Yeah. If you uh, go and find an A supplier uh, and you're taking a look at five different A suppliers, you would do the same thing. Exactly. And so we, we would do the reference checks. We would make sure that we are... Um, of same mind, of same values, of same principles, you would go do an audit. Um, you would inspect their SOPs and their quality system and things like that. You want to make sure that the um, the technician who's in the clean room has been there, has been trained, is not going to make any mistakes, is wearing their hairnet, is wearing their white gowns, and yeah. the, the, you know it's it's important. Same thing applies to CROs. No, it's, yeah. it's great. And uh, yeah, as I've said, for, for me, I'm used to do that here, yeah, as you said, with the suppliers, uh, but I didn't really thought. Once, once I, we asked ourselves if we should audit our notified body because we have to put them on the <laughs> approved supplier list. So <laughs> maybe not. Maybe That's an interesting question. question. <laughs> yeah, they are in our approved supplier list. Why and not? I don't ask for that. So like, should I do it? Or? <laughs> but yeah, that would good. be funny. Thank Good. you so, so much. Uh, I Alexia. love doing this. Uh, anything else to add or? Uh, no, just if there would be like a post-market opportunity, maybe if there's an episode three, yeah. we could think about post-market surveillance yeah. because, and, you know, sort of what's called real world evidence. Do you, you, do you hear that a lot yeah. in, in your job? Yeah. Maybe that would be in episode three and then I would be done. Right. So <laughs> I'll ask everybody to shut out and to say, you want to see again, Aletea? <laughs> and then I will make it. I will make an episode three for that. But really, okay. the first episode were really awesome. So thank you very much, Aletea. Uh, it was really great. I will put again uh, all your details on the, on the show notes that people can contact you. Uh, and just say thank you, maybe. Just say thank you for all that you delivered. Thank uh, you. Yeah, and for sure. I, I mean that. You're doing such a great job. You really you. are. Yes, thank absolutely. You. And I hope, as I said, to contact you for the third one, uh, if you are available, and we can work on, on this one for post-marketing surveillance. Sounds Good. great. Thank so, you so I'll much. Be... Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.